How many of you guys reflect back on Palm Sunday through the years and see it as uh, an exciting time, an uh, exciting day? See, when I was a kid, how, how many guys used to get these in church? How many guys? How many got it? How many guys would miss it if you didn't get it? See, I would. That's the reason we do it. I don't know. See, when I was growing up, like I say, I've said this every, just about every year. When I was growing up, we used to take, we used to have these and worship would come and there was a lot of this going on. I grew up in a pretty Pentecostal church. We would, we'd wave it a lot during worship. You guys don't do that. Um, a couple of you do. That's right. I'm sorry. Uh, a couple of you do. But for me, it was always that opportunity to really think about what it means to worship Jesus. What it means to see him and then worship him. A lot of this, lot of this is this, this event, this opportunity, this time in which I would take something like this and I would see people lift it up and I would see people wave it and it would reflect in my own heart, in my own mind, where my spirit was at as it related to Jesus. When we come into this place, Jesus comes into this place. Right? Jesus is present. Jesus comes. And I've always thought that whenever I would come into this place and I would see people worship with the palms, we wave them and things like that, it would cause me to reflect in my own heart, my own mind, really what is the status of my spirit in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of my Lord. And so I really want to challenge you guys, even today as we come to this moment in which we look at Palm Sunday and the entrance of the great king, rejoice greatly. The word of God says, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of, Is of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Today is Palm Sunday. And today we find ourselves reflecting on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's really the story of a king's entrance. It's really the story of the king's entrance. Stepping into and, and, and arriving at the holy city and those around him declaring him as king. It's a story recounted on this day for centuries. And so often it focuses on the shouts of the crowd, on their, response, on their response to his entrance, on the palm branches that are laid before him. It's a common story told and retold throughout church history. But there, there's a curious event in conjunction with the triumphal entry that, that gets overlooked. But then I believe gives great insight into the nature of our King Jesus. It's a part of the story that in all the years that I would come into church on Sunday morning and, that, and we would take the palm branches and we wave them throughout worship, it's a part of the story that I don't ever remember being, being turned to. I don't ever remember reflecting on. And yet I think it's a part of the story that moves us beyond just the story and into the nature of who Jesus Christ really is and what he came to do. And this is what I want us to think about this morning. I want us to look past simply the story to the character and the nature of the king we've come to extol. So we begin the recording of Palm Sunday as Jesus 
is ready to embark on his journey um, to Jerusalem, um, where the last week of his life begins. So this is the starting point of the Passion Week of Jesus Christ entering into that last week in which he will be beaten, in which he will die, in which he will rise again. And he says to the disciples to go into the city and find a donkey or find a colt waiting and, in, and untie him. Um, it's, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the most, it, as bizarre as the Passion Week is, this is, the one, this is the part of the story that always leaps out at me as being weird. I don't, I, it's probably my mindset, the way I look at things. But he tells the disciples, go into the city, find a colt, untie it. And if the owner finds you taking his donkey... Just say, my master has need of it. I mean, it's a simple, but as the disciples at this point, you're like, no. Like, it's like grand theft donkey, you know? Like, <laughs> but he, that's what they do. He sends them in and, and they go in and the, sure enough, it happens. The guy, the guy says, what are you doing? And they said, uh, my master has need of it. And the guy goes, oh, okay, cool. I always find that just odd, so. So this is what happens. And so they go and he says, my master needs it. So they get and get the colt. And Jesus begins his journey then to Jerusalem. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, had, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these, stone, if they were, these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As I said, we, we remember the shouts of Hosanna. We remember the palm branches being laid down and waved. We remember the shouting. We even remember the, the, the colt and the statement by Jesus about the stones crying out. But how many of us are reminded of the tears of Jesus? How many of us are reminded of, of, of the agony, of the wailing, of the the, the the translation here doesn't really do it justice. When you look at the Greek, it's not just that he shed a tear. It, it is that he was wailing, that he was, that he was broken and in tears. How many of us are reminded of that? Or when we think and reflect on Palm Sunday, remember that. The story of Palm Sunday, as we traditionally reflect on it, carries with it two primary focuses. In the one... We see the revelation of Christ as the great king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
We remember the declarations of Hosanna. Blessed is the king. Glory to God. These are all these true revelations of who Jesus was, of, of what his status was. And so, so often as we come and we, we reflect on this, that the message that we hear, the message that we, that we think of is the status of Jesus. How he is king. How he, in this, in this instance, is fulfilling that prophecy of the coming Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. It is the declaration that he is the king of kings. He is the prince of peace. He is that one who is Messiah. As Christ heads towards the cross, this becomes an unmistakable revelation of Christ as the Messiah, the son of David, the king of kings. And so often we reflect on him in this place as that exalted king of kings, as that prince of peace. We think in these moments on this day of the status of Jesus. And so often our our hearts and our minds are called to reflect on that, to think on that, to ask even of ourselves, is he king of kings to you? Is he the the prince of peace to you? Do you see him as that? Do you see his status as the Messiah in your life? We come to Palm Sunday and so often the story that is most, most pointed to is the idea that Jesus Christ is king. And the question we're asked, is he king in your life? That Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. And the question we're asked is, is he the prince who brings peace into your life? That he is the Messiah and Savior. The question that we're asked is, is he your Messiah? Is he your Savior? That tends to be the first story that we focus in on, the first lesson we receive from the story of Palm Sunday. And I think it's an important reflection on the status of Jesus Christ. And I think there is a benefit to reflect on the status of Jesus Christ. We also see traditionally... In this story, and we reflect on the, the, the tragic misunderstanding that speaks to our nature. It, it, is, it is the reflection on the spiritual misunderstanding of that crowd and how Jesus Christ came in and they said, they said, Who is this one? Who is this one who is king? Who is this one who is the Messiah? What has he come to do? And we take the time to reflect on that crowd's misunderstanding of that Messiah. Through the years, I've contended that this is not really the triumphal entry so much as it is a tragic entry. He was the Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But the tragic misunderstanding was that he would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works, take his throne, and make Israel free from Rome. It was the understanding that he would come and he would give them all the wealth that they desired, all the, all the freedom that they desired. And we take the time and we, we think about that and we, we reflect on that. These people who are shouting out the truth of Jesus' place as Messiah don't at all understand him as that Messiah. 
You see, they see him militaristically. They, they see him as the one that will come and overthrow Rome. And they'll, they'll give, they'll give him, they'll give, he'll give to them the wealth of Rome. And so we look at it and we say, man, there's something tragic about this. Because they are worshiping not the true Messiah. This is a worthy reflection for us on this day. Because many of us do the same thing. We've painted in our own minds the picture of what the Messiah is, of what, of what the Savior is, and how He's going to come, and He's going to bring me wealth, and He's going to bring me prosperity, and He's going to bring me happiness. And so when we step into the realm of, of worship, we ourselves are worshiping a false, a false idol that is our own making. And so we step into this, and that's that second idea as we, as we reflect on, on Palm Sunday that so many of us have focused in on. It is a worthy idea to contemplate. You see, what we, most, what we most often focus in on on Palm Sunday is either the status of Jesus Christ or the nature of our spiritual understanding. Both of these are important. Both of these have value. But this morning, instead of reflecting on the position of Christ as king, or our, or our shared spiritual nature with that crowd, I want to draw you to the nature of King Jesus that is revealed in the events of that day. I want to draw your attention to, to who this King Jesus was. The nature that he had the nature of, of his very existence and being that he was bringing to that position. Because I think there's something beautifully illustrated in the story that we don't look at very often. This is why the story of, G of Christ's tears is so valuable in the middle of this story. Because it gives us an incredible insight into the loving nature of this exalted king. We can look at the story of Palm Sunday and we can think about our own spiritual nature. We can think about, about where we stand, about where we are at as it relates to Jesus. And we can look at the position that Jesus Christ has and we can rejoice in who he is and what he, what he came to do. But I want us this morning to reflect on his loving nature that is revealed in this story. To go, to go beyond just his status and just our own reflection, but to look at seeing who he was in this. How at the center of his mission, in the midst of his rejection, his love and his compassion comes through. See, Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus knew what was taking place. He understood where he was going. He understood what the end of the week held. In fact, you can go back and you can read it. Jesus gives a blow-by-blow -blow description to the disciples about what's going to happen. He tells them, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to take me, and they're going to bind me, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to put me on a cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. I mean, he literally gives them a blow-by-blow. -blow. It's, one, it's, one it's, it's one of those moments in, in the relationship between the disciples and Jesus which always draws me to this point of thinking, they are the most thick-headed group of people you've ever met. Because he literally tells them, blow by blow, what's going to happen, and they're all like, oh, what happened? 
But Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew everything that was going to be taking place. He knew that the Pharisees were going to get the upper hand. He knew that the people would be fickle and follow their leaders. And he knew that he would be rejected and crucified. But it's interesting because this story, this story shows us he knew something else. That he was able to look beyond the end of the week into decades later. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus here, it says, he is saying these words through the wailing of tears. He is brokenhearted and he is weeping. And he's saying these tears. You see, Jesus here is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is looking, looking decades ahead into 70 AD, in which the Israelites are still fixated on a redemption that comes by the overthrowing of the Romans. So, so realize what's taking place here. Jesus Christ is riding into Jerusalem, and they are declaring him as the Messiah. They're declaring him as the one who will come to save them and overthrow their enemies. And Jesus knows that they're getting this wrong. And so he begins to weep, and he begins to prophesy about 70 years down the road in which they're still fixated on that redemption. And he, and he, and he prophesies here with, 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 with um, incredible accuracy. See, what ends, what ends up happening is they, they bring this uprising, which they say they're going to re revolt against, against the, the Romans. The, the Romans come in, led, led by General Titus. The Roman army comes in, led by General Titus, to, to squelch the rebellion. And what he does is he, create, he builds a barricade. See what Jesus says? And they will barricade you in. He literally, Titus comes in and literally builds a barricade around the city to make sure nobody can get out and nobody can get in. The first barricade he builds, he builds, uh, he builds with, uh, um, with, with uh, sticks and wood and that kind of thing, a, a quick barricade, a, a quick barricade that they can set up. And the Israelites, the Israelites in one of their attacks breaks out and they tear down a section of the barricade so, they, so people can get out and things can get in. Well, General Titus says, no, 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 no. Fine, you're going to tear that down? And they come in and they build a barricade, a wall around the city with stone that can't be broken. Uh, it would normally would take three months. They did it in like four days. And they barricaded them in, and as a result, thousands of people, men, women, and children, were slaughtered and killed as a result of this rebellion. So what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying, guys, if you would only know the peace that I come to bring, it's not that peace over there. If you'd only know of the visitation that was coming upon you, that is here with you now. 
You would set aside the foolishness. You would set aside your desire for other things and you would know that it is fulfilled completely in me. You think about where he's at right now, where Jesus' mindset is at. The Israelites will reject Jesus because he doesn't fulfill the vision of what the Messiah should be. He doesn't fulfill their vision of what they think he's supposed to do in overthrowing the Romans. They want him to overthrow their enemies. And when they see him clearly defeated and incapable of doing what they want, when they stand there and they see him beaten and bloodied before the Roman prefect, their hearts are, are, are broken and, and, and their, their dreams are dashed because they see he can't stand up to these guys. And as a result, he pays the price of their disappointment when they cry out, crucify him. And then Jesus, looking into the future, seeing them still clinging to the hope of a military Messiah and being bitterly disappointed, Jesus weeps for them. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating reflection on the heart and the nature of Jesus, isn't it? He knows that their foolishness, he knows that their stubbornness, he knows that their rejection of him will lead to his death. It will lead to his crucifixion, will lead to his torturing. But he weeps for them because he knows ultimately it will lead to their death. His heart is broken that in rejecting him, they will only find bitter disappointment and sorrow. We see in this a window into the type of loving nature that Christ has. And what that loving nature teaches us about his interactions with us and even our interactions with others. You see, his loving nature causes him to speak truth to the lost. His loving nature causes him to speak truth to those who are lost. Christ throughout his ministry never shied away from the difficult truth when reaching out in merciful love. He, he looked at those who would reject truth. He looked at those who were looking for something else and he said, listen, you have to understand, in rejecting this, destruction will come. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make peace. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jesus Christ is standing up and he's looking at them and he's saying, listen, I want you to understand something. If you only receive me, if you only accept me, if you only embrace me and know the peace that I have, destruction will not come. But because you have rejected me, because you have set me aside, there is destruction coming. There is judgment coming. Christ looked upon Jerusalem and he understood that they were rejecting him. As clear as Jesus Christ had mercy on them, it didn't change the fact that the rejection of him, that putting their hope in something other than who Christ was, 
would lead to their destruction and their judgment. You see, the consequences of rejecting hope in Christ still stands. The consequences of putting your hope in something other than Jesus or a Jesus of your own making still stands. Destruction comes. Judgment comes. And Jesus Christ at no point throughout his ministry ever wavered from that message because he was merciful, because he was loving, and he needed to call people to repentance. In fact, look at, look at, look at that most, often most referen- one of the most referenced examples of Christ's mercy. We hear people talk about how, how, how merciful and, and how gracious and, and loving Jesus was, and he was. But if you look at the, one, of the, one of the stories that's told all the time about how he was so much more forgiving and so much more gracious, so much more loving than those before, was the woman, at the, was, uh, was the woman who was caught in her, in her adultery, right? Right? So, so this woman is caught in adultery, and the law says that, that because of being caught in adultery, she should be stoned. That's what the law says. And so the crowd took her and dragged her out of the city, and they were going to stone her to death. Because she deserved it according to the law. Jesus Christ walks into the crowd. And he looks at the crowd and he says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now remember that, right? And in that story, we see the, 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 the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But you know what his love and his mercy and his grace compelled him to say next? When everyone walked away because they themselves were sinners? Do you know what his love and his mercy and his grace compelled him to say? Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus Christ understood that when we put our our hopes and our desires in anything other than him as the hope of our joy, as the hope of our peace, that, that the... The result of that is destruction. The result of that is judgment. And in His mercy and grace, He calls us away from that to Him. This isn't the only example we see of Jesus Christ in His interactions with people over and over and over again. Go to the story of Nicodemus, the, the, the Pharisee who would put his hope in the law, who would put his hope in, 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 in doing good and doing right and doing everything that the, the Bible or all, all, everything that the law told him. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Listen, man, you got to be born again. It's not about what you do." And he goes, I don't understand. And you follow that whole conversation, and Jesus ultimately comes and says, "Listen, what I mean by being born again is that you put your hope in me." That you believe in me. That I'm your redemption. That I'm the way in which you find salvation. And he says in that, that conversation with Nicodemus, he says, listen, I didn't come to condemn the world. And the reason he says that is he says, because the world is already condemned. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. He in his grace, he in his mercy spoke truth. That the only hope was in him. Because judgment and destruction was coming otherwise. It was the message he had to the Pharisees. It was the message he had to the woman at the well. 
We just studied this in, in men's group the other day. And it's really fascinating, his interaction with her. Because he is, I mean, he is cold-blooded honest with her. Like, it is, it's like crazy. Like, none of us would do what he did. He's going through this whole conversation with her. And it's, oh, there's, there's the water, and the water has life, and you believe in me, and you have life, and all this kind of thing. And then Jesus looks at her and says, you know what, you should go get your husband. We can talk about this. She goes, well, I, I don't have a husband. He goes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right, you don't have a husband. You have five husbands, and the one you're with really isn't your husband. Dude, calls her out, like, just calls her out. You know why? Because his merciful nature requires him to call out our sin because he knows that our sin causes judgment and destruction. This is a heart of mercy. This is the heart of grace. This is the heart of love. In his merciful nature, he confronted sin and called people to repentance. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherosin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Why? Because there was no repentance. There was no turning to God and saying, it's not in what I have, it's not in what I do, but it's in the work of Jesus Christ that I have my, my, my redemption. What he says in Matthew chapter 13, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand Jesus' warning of judgment? You know why? Because He's a merciful God who calls people to repentance so that they might be redeemed from their sin. He calls for repentance 16 times. In his messages. He speaks of hell 15 times. He calls out sin 85 times. He warns of judgment 20 times. Merciful love does not mean bearing truth. Merciful love requires speaking truth. And that truth leads us to repentance and redemption. We cannot, from a merciful heart, Ignore the truth. We have to speak and we have to call out. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. It is indifference. And showing indifference to sin can never be interpreted as merciful love. This is the nature of Jesus Christ revealed as he shed tears for the broken status of Jerusalem. His loving nature Speaks truth to the lost. The second thing I understand as I read this is that his loving nature extends grace to the undeserving. 
This expression of mercy by Christ is fascinating in that Jesus cries for those who will reject him. Jesus cries for those who will have him beaten. Jesus cries for those who will have him crucified. I said earlier that the, the, the declaration there of him, of him, of him weeping, of him, of him crying, it literally means that Jesus wailed, that Jesus burst into sobbing as he lamented the lost opportunity for redemption for these people. And in that, he was realizing where he was heading, how their rejection of him was going to cause him this pain, how the rejection of him was going to cause his death. But he wept for them because he wanted them to be redeemed. Matthew Henry comments on Jesus' tears and says, The great ambassador from heaven is here making his public entry into Jerusalem, not to be respected there, but to be rejected. He knew what the rest, that the nest of vipers he was throwing himself into. And yet see here his love for that place and his concern for it. They would reject him. They would flog him. They will crucify him. But his heart is broken for them. He wasn't angry at their sin. He wasn't angry at their rejection. His heart was broken because of it. Merciful love is marked by a heart that breaks for people's brokenness. Listen, it is easy to reject, to discount, to ignore, to set aside, to despise people who mistreat you. But in doing that, you do not show the merciful love that he calls us to. It's easy for us to get disgusted with people who continue in sin. It's easy for us to want to put at arm's length people who continue in, in their foolishness, in their, in their brokenness, in their stupidity. Because so many of us sit in a place where we're oh so much more spiritual than them. At, at, at the heart of one of the problems we have as a church is our spiritual arrogance causes us to push people away because we think we're better. And mercy and grace calls us to weep for those who are broken. To have our own hearts break because of their brokenness, because of their sinfulness. We can speak truth but it needs to flow from a heart breaking for the brokenness that is causing the sin. I believe fully, I believe completely in the fact that we have to speak truth to people. That's what I just talked about. We have to call people out and we have to tell them that judgment is coming. But we can only speak from that place rightfully if our heart is breaking for them because of their sin. Think of Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. It's incredible when you read those words in light of Palm Sunday story, isn't it? How Jesus deeply lived this idea. How he was deeply broken by their brokenness. How he was moved by their sinfulness. Because he loved them so deeply. How do you live this out? How do we live this out? Think about the difficulty of this. The only way we live this out is if we ourselves are captured by the merciful love of Jesus Christ. This is why I think it is this is why I think it is beneficial for us on this Palm Sunday to reflect on his merciful nature because he had that nature towards us and he calls us to that nature. Does your heart break for people, even people who are undeserving of your mercy? It is the only way that we can model Christ's merciful love. It is easy to despise, even take joy in judgment that is coming unbroken and hard-headed people. But that is not the heart of Christ. That's really for me why this story of him weeping at the fulfillment of their folly strikes me particularly. He looked into the future and he saw where their rejection was leading. He saw where their rejection was going. Where their stupidity and hard-headedness and their rejection of him was going. And he wept about it. Honestly, the reason why it hits me so deeply is because I know as I reflect on my life how many times I have taken joy in the fact that hard-hearted, hard-headed, stupid people who continually sin against me met, met their judgment, met, met their, their comeuppance. And it humbles me because I know that Jesus Christ didn't sit there and say, well, that's what you get. You had your chance. You, I was here. You had your chance. You had the opportunity. But no, you had to go for the military way. So now look what happens to you. That's not what he did, is it? He's so deeply not what he did. And it is so deeply what I do so often. To be broken in spirit and in heart by the brokenness of people who hurt us, is the nature of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, as I read this story, I learned so deeply that his loving nature produces acts of mercy towards those who were hurting and those who hurt him. See, he continued to act out of his merciful love. See, he never deterred from his plan. He came to this earth sent by the Father so that he would, he would live and ultimately die. That he would die a horrific death for the purpose of the redemption of sinners. And even though he, he found himself over and over again uh, un, uh, un, 
unfairly rejected, unfairly treated, with the culmination of it ending and coming to at the end of this week with, with his beating, with his, with his death on the cross. He never looked around at those people and said, you know what, I, I'm not doing this for you. I'm done doing this. Like, you, you people are too stupid, you people are too sinful, you people are too pig-headed. And it wasn't just what he said, it ultimately is what he did. His acts of mercy towards those who were hurting, even those who hurt him. Throughout his ministry, he comforted those who were rejected. He touched those who were sick and healed them. He comforted those who mourned. And ultimately, he suffered and died for those who were lost. His merciful act of mercy was born out of his merciful love towards us. That's really the message of where this week goes. After all the rejection, he went to the cross. After all the rejection, he went to the cross and he was beaten and bloodied and died there for those who rejected him. This is, this is the real power of the work of Jesus Christ. That after all is said and done, he died for lost sinners. You know who that is? You and me. The tragedy of Palm Sunday, that first Palm Sunday, was that they did not have the ability to worship truly their king. Because their shouts and their praise and their waving of palm branches was not for who he was, but for who they wanted him to be. But it is in this truth that we this morning can come to this place and worship him in spirit and in truth. Because we can worship him. Because his, his merciful love, the nature of his merciful love, caused him to die on the cross for you and me. He looked at each one of us and said, listen, I know you've rejected me. I know that over time and over time and over time, you've turned your back on me. But I still love you and I still died for you and I'm still your savior. And when we are captured by that truth, we can walk into the nature of Christ and we can worship him in spirit and in truth. The nature of Christ exhibited on that triumphal entry day 2,000 years ago, was a nature of merciful love. A broken heart for the broken. It marked his ministry. It marked that day. And it marked his act on Good Friday. Your king has come. In his nature of loving mercy towards us and towards all. This Easter season, I challenge you to reflect on the nature of Jesus Christ. 
His, his nature of love extended toward you. May it comfort you. May it encourage you. May it inspire you to live and worship in spirit and in truth. Rejoice greatly. Your king has come. It is the reflection on the true nature of Jesus that will lead us to truly worship this true Messiah. Not the false Messiah of our own creation, but this loving King who speaks truth to the lost, extends grace to the undeserving, and who acts in mercy toward us all.